Our assembly this evening is co-sponsored by the School of Philosophy at the Catholic University of America. It thus befalls me as dean of that school to welcome to this campus and to this building anyone here who counts himself a visitor. We're very glad to have you with us. It also falls to me to give credit where it is due, since I cannot realistically hope to claim it all for myself. Although the School of Philosophy is the co-sponsor for this event, the institution that is really responsible for its coming to be is the Hildebrand Project. The Hildebrand Project has its origin in turn in one John Henry Crosby, the project's president and founder. John Henry is described on the website of the Hildebrand Project, a place I commend to you, as cultural entrepreneur, among other things. And this seems to me entirely apt. Had he not developed an interest some 15 years ago in the writings of the German philosopher and Catholic theologian Dietrich von Hildebrand, John Henry would doubtless now be the head of some billion-dollar startup manufacturing digital widgets in some offshore cloud. Instead, he has spent himself tirelessly in the dissemination of Hildebrand's writings as editor, translator, and publisher, but also as lecturer, writer, and conference organizer. Even if you've not read a word yet of von Hildebrand, may you soon make amends, you can be grateful to him for sparing us still more Silicon Valley flimflam. <laughs> be that as it may, we are certainly all indebted to John Henry Crosby for having served as prime mover of our gathering here. Under the intriguing, yet also maybe vaguely disturbing title, Beauty in a World of Ugliness. I mean, speaking truthfully, I don't see much ugliness looking out upon you, and if I did, I wouldn't say so. <clears throat> Since John Henry is also the moderator of our proceedings, I now gladly entrust your care to him. Thank you. Well, well give, given the Hildebrand Project's fundraising needs, I feel like I've missed my, mo my vocation in Silicon Valley, and maybe I'll have to reevaluate uh, the next chapter. Um, also, the credit is, is by no means, by the way, can I be heard? Okay. The credit by no means goes all to me. There are many, many other prime movers in the Hildebrand Project. There is, above all, Alice von Hildebrand, the widow of Dietrich von Hildebrand, who at the age of 95 remains sharp and very active in, in our work, in our vision. There is my father, Dr. John Crosby, who was himself a student of Dietrich von Hildebrand. There are my colleagues in the Hildebrand Project. There are benefactors. So um, maybe I can take uh, the responsibility for a very small first step, but it's been accompanied all along by, by many others. I also want to thank you, John, for, uh, for agreeing to co-host this event. This is our first formal collaboration with Catholic University's School of Philosophy, and I hope that I, I, I'd like to say that a turnout like this bodes well for further uh, collaborations uh, in the future, and we have uh, many good things to come. So before turning to our main event, and I know why you're all really here, and it's because of our 
our esteemed friend, Sir Roger Scruton. I just want to say a little bit about Dietrich von Hildebrand and the Hildebrand Project so that you all understand why we are hosting this event in the first place. So the occasion for this afternoon's event is the arrival, long awaited, of a major work of philosophical aesthetics. In this work, known simply as Aesthetics, is a two-volume work by the philosopher Dietrich von Hildebrand, written quite amazingly at the age of 80 in a period of 11 months. Uh, he said to his wife, it's time I write my aesthetics, and he delivered. 11 months, uh, 30 pages a day, apparently, he could write sometimes. And this was a, this was a lifetime of reflection on beauty, on, on aesthetic uh, considerations that came pouring out of him, and it is the occasion of this event because this work is finally seeing the light of day. The first volume is recently out. Volume two is forthcoming in November, and it, uh, we're very honored to have a wonderful forward to that volume by, by Sir Roger. A word just on von Hildebrand. He was born and raised in, he was born 1889, raised in Florence in his father's home. His father was a renowned German architect in sculpture. Uh, von Hildebrand was born really under the aegis of music the day he was born. The composer Richard Strauss was knocking at the door looking for a recommendation from Adolf von Hildebrand. Von Hildebrand discovered philosophy as a teenager reading platonic dialogues and went on to study with many of the leading minds in Germany. He studied under Edmund Husserl, the fa fa father of phenomenology. He studied under Max Scheler, who was a great friend of his, who is the source of his personalism. He studied under Adolf Reinach, who was also the great teacher of St. Edith Stein. He converted to Catholicism as a young man, primarily through the way of beauty, which gives you a sense already of his destiny to write about it in beauty, beauty in art, beauty in nature, but in a special way, the beauty of the saints. It was the beauty of sanctity as he experienced it that finally opened the door into the church. In the early 1920s, he emerged as one of the first Catholics of stature to oppose the Nazis. Those of you who know your history, and in a room like this, I know many of you do, he was already blacklisted for assassination in 1923, the first time Hitler sought to seize power. He went then to Vienna, where he established the, the, the home base of the early Nazi resistance of, of Catholics and other like-minded people, founded a journal of intellectual resistance, when Hitler invaded Austria in 1938, von Hildebrand was a refugee for many years, had an extraordinary escape and a very moving escape, uh, thanks to all those who helped him, and he arrived on our shores in 1940. He went on then to teach at Fordham University for 20 years, and during his, both his period in the States and in Europe, he was a prolific writer. In the 1920s, he inaugurated the whole personalist approach to marriage in books like In Defense of Purity, and then in his time in the States, he developed many of his ethical works. Uh, I'm sure all of you in this room have at least heard of a work uh, such as Transformation in Christ, which is perhaps his most famous work. He was, of course, a prolific writer in the post-conciliar period, and many of those works now have a new resonance today. When he died in 1977, he left an extraordinary impact on the life of the church, and that impact, that, that tremendous legacy that he left behind uh, remains uh, to be unpacked. The, the fact that many of his works were written in German is what originally called the Hildebrand Project into existence. We were founded to translate and publish all of these works that he, he wrote in his late years in German. But the project is not just a vehicle for von Hildebrand's work. That's a primary 
object of our work. But we seek also to advance the whole tradition of personalism and Christian philosophy that he represents, and even beyond that, to bring his thought to bear on the immediate problems of culture. So this is not just an ivory tower project, it's also an in-the-trenches project as well. So it's in this framework of today's event that Hildebrand's, it's in this framework that uh, we are having this gathering. It is the, uh, the promotion of Dietrich von Hildebrand's legacy. It's the arrival of the aesthetics. And during this period to come, in the years to come, we will devote considerable time and energy to fostering discussion around the aesthetics of von Hildebrand, but perhaps even more fundamentally around the renewal of the idea of beauty, both as a credible concept, because I can tell you in many graduate programs it's a non-starter even to speak, of beauty as a, a meaningful idea, but also as an ideal for creative work, for artists today, who many still will not identify themselves in terms of the creation of beautiful things. So Roger Scruton is one of today's most eminent champions of beauty, and I think that's one of the reasons so many of you are attracted to his work. And so we're delighted to be collaborating with him, to continue our collaboration with him. His thought on beauty has many re rich points of contact with that of von Hildebrand, so we're very eager to foster that, that conversation. So just a word on format. It's very simple. We'll hear first from Sir Roger, then we'll have uh, a response from David Schindler, and we'll have a response from Dr. Crosby. And from there, we'll go straight to your questions, and we'll have as many questions as we can accommodate. There will be a wireless mic. I'd ask you all to use it, and I will moderate that discussion. And so without further ado, Sir Roger. Thank you very much, John, for that introduction. And of course, the, the work of von Hildebrandt, as you rightly say, is of particular relevance, not only to the philosophy of beauty, but also to the uh, Catholic tradition and the revival of Catholic intellectual life that took place, uh, has taken place recently, largely uh, thanks to Pope John Paul II, who was himself uh, a member of this personalist tradition in philosophy that you referred to, uh, the, which grew in, in uh, Central Europe in the first half of the 20th century, and the influence of which has not yet been sufficiently felt, I think, uh, in, in um, this part of the world, or in general in the English-speaking world. And uh, I suppose I would count myself as a kind of personalist in that I think that the concept of the human person is fundamental to our understanding uh, of the world as a whole and indeed that the idea of beauty has its roots in that of personality. Uh, today I'm just going to introduce the discussion with a few remarks about uh, what ugliness is. Uh, and. Uh, uh, and the way in which ugliness has come into our world uh, it, it, as a kind of uh, inevitable force, a force that seems to squeeze itself into every uh, opening that is available to it. It's not, this is an unusual thing, it's not natural for human beings to pursue ugliness, to cultivate it, or to uh, uh, praise it when it occurs. As you know from your own lives, when given a little territory of your own, uh, whether a, a room to live in, or, or a, an event to dress for, or a speech to make, 
or a ceremony to attend, your first thought is to look for the beautiful. Everybody has an instinct to decorate the room in which he lives according to his own taste and also to compare that taste with others, to stand back from the painting that he's applied to the wall and asking himself, ask himself whether it's right or wrong, uh, whether it would look good uh, in such and such circumstances, how the furniture should be put, uh, put in place, and what would others think. And in particular, it's that question, what would others think, which makes people behave correctly in the aesthetic sphere. Nobody wants ostentatiously to give offence, uh, or they didn't want ostentatiously to give offence, until that became part of what it is to be a creative artist, uh, which is what, of course, is taught in the art schools today. Uh, so in defiance of that natural instinct that we all have to beautify our lives, which is an instinct, as I say, that belongs to our natural politeness, our ability to, and desire to respect each other. In defiance of that, there has been what um, the uh, novelist Milan Kundera calls the uglification of modern life. Uh, that that where, wherever we turn, we find the deliberate desecration of beautiful things, the employment of shapes, forms, uh, and um, gestures, which are calculated to uh, either to repel us or or, or simply to annihilate uh, the surrounding experience of beauty. I've just been speaking about the destiny of Washington under the um, impact of the postmodern architecture which now uh, is accumulating on the edge of the, of the old center. These great big uh, uh, blocks, boxes of glass, often of mirror glass, which, have, which are not just characterless in themselves, but obliterate the whole sense of, of the city as a settlement, a shared settlement, a place where you would want to make your home, They're turning it from a settlement into a, a kind of transit camp where you appear in an office for a few hours of the day before escaping from the center. And this kind of architecture, which everybody now knows is, is growing everywhere, is uh, obliterating our cities but by turning them into places where we don't really want to be. We have to come there to work, but we don't want to remain there when the, the hours of work are over. Uh, and, and that's part of what uglification is, turning everything into an instrument of some purpose of the individual, uh, in defiance of any sense of community or belonging. And um, I think people are beginning to rebel against the kind of architecture that's been imposed on our cities since the war, but it's rather late in the day to do so. You, of course, are lucky here in the Catholic University in that the efforts of many people have been devoted to making this into a beautiful environment, a, a place where you want to be, which you will regard as home, and the memory of which you will cherish in your life's lives hereafter. And if you look round at this room, you can see just how easy it is to do. It didn't require a great deal of thought or a great deal of uh, discussion to recognize that you have to build a room with certain proportions, that you have to have details that people will like, uh, and, um, uh, and moldings around the edges and so on. Uh, and uh, the result is, okay, not a great work of art, but everybody is going to be happy here uh, for as long as it exists. 
But uh, the uglification of modern life means that everywhere we look, there's a kind of brash, in-your-face culture displaying itself, the culture of the consumer society, which says, uh, which invades everything and asks of every event and episode, what's in it for me? The me idea is written on the face of those glass boxes, uh, and it's about the only thing written on the face of them. This clamor for attention as well of anything that presents itself as art. And if you complain about this, you discover that you are actually part of the enemy. We belong, this, this um, consumer society is also a society which, which refuses judgment. Uh, judgment is the original sin. Uh, somebody who says, you know, there is a right and wrong way to build, or a right and wrong way to dress, a right and wrong way to decorate, that there is, uh, there is beautiful language and ugly language and so on. Such a person uh, is condemned uh, as the great spoil sport, uh, the one who is judging others when he has no right to do so, because the whole realm of aesthetic uh, experience is, is judgment-free. Uh, uh, and um, uh, this, so this, this uglified world accuses the one who wishes to criticize it uh, and uh, it wishes to remove all obstacles to the gratification of the self. Uh, and we've seen this in all kinds of walks of life. Nobody can, no outsider to America can look on the recent um, d dispute over the uh, nomination to the Supreme Court without recognizing the extreme ugliness of the whole thing. It was as though America had decided overnight to put on display to the, uh, uh, to the external world that this is the ugliest society in existence. Whichever side you, whichever side you took in the dispute, it was uh, a side which required shouting and screaming, de uh, the deformation of the face, lying and manipulation, and, um, and also the undermining of anything that suggested that, that human beings could rise above this and decide the issue in a rational and calm way. Uh, so that uglification of the political process has occurred also. Uh, the uglification of cities, roads, landscape, uh, and the rest. Uh, and a lot of it has to do, of course, with television and the internet, uh, which have so trapped our attention uh, that it's only the shocking and the disturbing that can give us any sense of saying something new. But of course what they're saying is the same as they've always been saying, uh, namely that the world is not worth living in. So nothing else, only ugliness can capture our jaded attention. That seems to be uh, the, the basic assumption behind the, uh, the uglified society. And it, it, it goes also with what all Catholics will recognize as a, 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 an important social phenomenon, which is the deconsecration of sacred things. Uh, and and uh, it's very obvious to Catholics, at least, that this has happened in the case of uh, a personal life, uh, of, um, of birth and reproduction and death. The, made, the most important events in our lives, these have been deconsecrated. Marriage, of course, has been deconsecrated, handed over to the state, and then uglified by being made into a mere pursuit of me, of my gratification, rather than a devotion to you. 
And, and this uh, deconsecration, therefore, has led also to a desecration of things. Nobody is happy with the result, including those who brought it about. Uh, their unhappiness is, is manifest in the ugliness of the thing that they've produced. So what is the antidote to this? Obviously, the antidote is beauty, and I don't think that we have lost the power to use that antidote and to re-consecrate our lives by means of it. Um, what is dis distinguishes beauty in all the of, of, uh, human endeavors is that the beautiful object is not uh, appreciated simply as a means to something else. It's not a tool, it's not an instrument for gaining advantage or anything like that. The beautiful object is something which is understood and appreciated for what it is, for its own sake. It has an intrinsic meaning and value. Uh, and we, in the situation in which we are now, in this uglified world, are looking for something which will redeem that world by enabling us to rise above the whole idea of instrumental values. You know, to look on the world in such a way that it isn't simply uh, being treated as an instrument for my own gratification, for, a, for enhancing my position, uh, uh, giving me power, pleasure, and all the other uh, worldly values which, which, will, which cause people to annihilate their surroundings. Um, so, so through beauty, uh, through be pursuit of beauty, we are trying to refashion human life so that peace and rest form the heart of it. Uh, and this, I think, me connects the pursuit of beauty automatically with the two forms of life that have always been associated with it. First of all, art, and secondly, religion. Art means, the pursuit of art, uh, the creation of art, means taking aesthetic choice and raising it into a realm of its own. So it, be, it becomes a way of life, a way of expressing the life in you, a, a way of praising and endorsing the world and affirming your own being uh, and the being of others along with it. But at the same time, subduing those appetites that, uh, that cause you to obliterate the existence of others. Uh, now, in everyday life, obviously, means and instrumentality dominate our ends uh, and our, our purposes. But the judgment of beauty brings that uh, domination to a limit. It conveys a sense of the end, a sense of the intrinsic value of certain things that we pursue. And in art, there is only intrinsic value. When you tell a story, uh, writing a, a novel or a story or, a, or a, a, an epic in verse, for, ins for instance, such as the great epics of Homer, um, you, you do so not to convey information, but to give an example of something. To, you're, to, you're creating an imaginary world which is interesting for its own sake precisely because you, the creator, and the listener or reader don't inhabit that world. It's not a world which is possible for you to enter. So you can stand back from it, contemplate it, uh, look for order in it, see exactly how things fit together, how they can be completed and fulfilled so that they become interesting intrinsically for what they are. And in that way, uh, a work of art, a work of fiction, can lift human life out of the whole struggle of instrumentality and, and appetite and present it as an object of contemplation for its own sake. 
And maybe that work of fiction, that epic or whatever it is, is full of tragedy and unpleasant things. But in presenting it in this imaginary, presenting tragedy in this imaginary form, we enable people to stand back from it, to recognize its intrinsic connection with the rest of our lives, so that it's part of the order of the whole. It's it, this, uh, the tragic uh, work of art shows us that death and suffering are part of the con human condition, and without them, all those good things that depend upon them wouldn't be available to us. So art in that way reconciles us to human life, gives us a sense that, uh, that life has an intrinsic meaning uh, and is as such justified in itself. And that is one great antidote to uglification and it's the antidote which uh, has informed my life. Uh, I'm a relatively sedentary person uh, at least I, I was until I, I, I met my fox hunting wife uh, uh, and this re result of which has been a, a, a series of interesting accidents <laughs> but uh, but ne nevertheless uh, it is second nature for me to sit around reading uh, uh, listening to music playing the piano and so on but in all of that I flatter myself perhaps, but in all of that I think I have found a way of looking on life as intrinsically meaningful, uh, as having a, making a place for me without me having to, to pursue in a clamorous way my own appetites. I can stand back and say, it is good to be, uh, and I, th that the uh, things that are impinging on me and uglifying my, my existence can be resisted. I can turn away from them and make my own sphere where I can build life in another way. But of course, most people in this room, I'm sure, uh, who will be of Catholic faith and will recognize that, uh, uh, that um, art is all very well, but it itself depends upon something deeper, upon the, the religious sentiment from which um, our desire to be at home in the world originally begins. Uh, and many religious people will say that without faith, you aren't ever really at home in the world. You sense your, your condition as one of alienation. You're looking for something, even if you don't yourself know this, something that will reconcile your, your way of being not only to yourself and to others, but to the divine order that governs everything. But whatever you think about that, uh, it is certainly true that religion, like art, is a realm of value. It's a realm in which we try to raise up the human condition into a light that shines from elsewhere, the light of the divine. Uh, we know, whether we're uh, believers or not, we know that, that we cannot ourselves create the light which fully redeems our world. We look for it elsewhere. We can look for it in art, but for most people, and uh, most religious people, uh, the, the real source of that light is the divine. And the search for beauty in earthly things takes us first to art and through art to the ideal in which the divine is prefigured. And I think this is one of the most important features of religion that uh, at least for someone uh, of my formation, uh, namely that it attaches beauty to the world, brings down into the world the beauty uh, that rescues it from this uh, craven ugliness which is growing all around us. Uh, and religion, religions in particular, the Christian religion, are founded in 
activities which are intrinsically beautiful in themselves, which create a fabric of meaning uh, that is laid over the surface of the world in such a way that the world indeed becomes a home for us. Rituals do this. The Mass, of course, does this. The, the habit of prayer and the recognition of the sacred in things, the re-consecration of the world. And that, I think, is the point on which I'd like to leave you, that, that the answer to the uglification that is growing all around us, which is putting the whole world on sale to, the, to our selfish appetites, the answer to that is a, a gesture, however we arrive at it, of re-consecration. We must reconsecrate the world as a place where we can belong as complete beings and belong to others and to the community around us and to the world as a whole and expel these, this uglification from the, the middle of our lives. But I, I will leave that to my, now to my fellow panelists to say what that means. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sir Roger. So next we'll hear from, from Dr. David Schindler, who I think needs no introduction, but to those of you who, um, uh, who have perhaps come from elsewhere, Dr. Schindler teaches philosophy at the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family here at Catholic University. Uh, he is uh, deep, deeply rooted in the world of Hans Urs von Balthasar, and our encounter has been driven in part by an interest in bringing together the aesthetics of von Hildebrand and von Balthasar. So in any case, I'm very happy to have, uh, have you with us, David, and so invite you forward. Uh, thank you, John Henry. It's, it really is a, a, a privilege to uh, be able to participate in a conversation on, on beauty, which um, I uh, think is, is, is one of the things that has, has drawn us all here, a sense of the problem that uh, Sir Roger just presented, um, that, that uh, uh, an attention to uh, desire for beauty is something that has been lacking in our, in our culture. So I'm, I'm grateful to be uh, a part of the conversation. It's, it's a privilege. Um, <clears throat> Hunters from Balthazar observed that, that uh, um, truth and goodness are um, obviously important matters, and in every age um, we find uh, people willing to defend those, um, those uh, transcendental properties, as he calls them. Um, but uh, it's, that's less often the case uh, with beauty. I think um, it's not as obvious that beauty is um, a, a serious matter, um, something worth dying for, in fact. Um, and, and therefore, uh, defenders are much more rare. But um, uh, Balthazar argues that without beauty, um, in fact, it may not seem as serious initially, but uh, truth and goodness ultimately depend on them. And we, if we lose beauty, we ultimately lose uh, truth and goodness. So it's, it's a, um, a, a crucial task in every age to defend beauty. And for that, we can be grateful to Dietrich uh, von Hildebrand, of course, and 
Andres from Balthazar, uh, but more recently uh, to Sir Roger for uh, the work that he's done. He's no doubt one of the great uh, defenders of beauty in our age in the Anglophone uh, world. Um, so we have a, a, a debt to him for that. Um, one of the points that he insists on is that beauty is not simply an experience, but a, a revelation of, of meaning, especially in the, in the realm of art. Um, and that, that the meaning that it reveals, as we saw in the, in the presentation that he gave, um, bears on the meaning of everything and not just particular objects of art. So um, I, I thought the most fruitful way for me to participate in the discussion would be um, to, to uh, raise two questions. Um, uh, and these are questions that uh, were prompted by uh, Sir Roger's book, A Very Short Introduction to Beauty, a, a, a wonderful uh, presentation of his aesthetics. Um, and uh, the first question is really a request for, for uh, elaboration. So one of the most illuminating things that I found in uh, Sir Roger's book is um, uh, a fascinating distinction between imagination and fantasy. Imagination and fantasy, we often think of those to get together. And uh, I, I, I would like to, um, uh, to request a, maybe an elaboration of that distinction in our discussion and the significance, because I think it might be illuminating for, for other people as well. Uh, in particular, um, what I find um, interesting uh, is, uh, as, as Sir Roger explains, um, the fantasy world uh, seems to have a strange sort of mixture of the real and the unreal. It, it, it sort of blurs the lines, whereas, uh, as we heard in the presentation that he gave, um, uh, the world of imagination is a world that's distinct from the world that we live in, and it's very clearly distinct. The world of fantasy seems somehow to, to, to blur the line between uh, the, the, the real and the unreal, or the, the interested and disinterested. Um, and, and the strange thing is that, that, that uh, that seems to give rise to a paradox, and this is alluded to in Sir Roger's book, um, but it would be helpful to, to hear perhaps an, an explanation. He, he uh, points out in, in the book that um, uh, imagination, uh, in, in spite of the fact that it's an elevation out, uh, a lifting in a certain sense beyond this world, uh, in, in a certain respect allows us to enter more deeply into reality. So um, if it doesn't itself uh, um, foster the connection between um, the soul and, and, and the real, it, it, it opens up that possibility in, in, in a, a profound way. And he, I think he, he um, made some very interesting comments already in his, his presentation there. Uh, but he points out the contrast in fantasy. Um, there's there's a, a certain um, inner dynamic and inner logic that drives uh, the experience of the fantasy world to uh, addiction. It takes the form of addiction, which really is an isolation from reality. So strangely, the thing that elevates us beyond reality, helps us to enter in, whereas the one that's sort of a mix between the real and the unreal um, takes us out of reality. It would be helpful, perhaps, to hear a comment on, 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 on that, um, especially in our age uh, that is increasingly dominated by, I think, uh, fantasy as opposed to imagination, um, virtual reality, and even um, uh, oddly, uh, the, 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 it seems the increasing preoccupation with, with politics 
in uh, the realm of art. Uh, you can't go to a concert now without a political message uh, being spoken, and you wonder why, what, what's there? Is, there? is there somehow a misunderstanding of what art is? Uh, precisely in the in the aim to make it meaningful. The second question that I wanted to, to ask is a, is a, a little more of a, a critical question, I suppose. Um, but I was uh, struck at the end of uh, Sir Roger's book on um, on beauty. Um, he he said in his concluding remarks that implicitly in the book um, he had uh, rejected the uh, Neoplatonic um, and scholastic. Uh, notion of beauty as a transcendental property, as a reflection of being. Um, and he, he said the book uh, uh, implicitly rejects that. Um, I, I, would, I would like to know uh, why exactly and, and what would be important, uh, why, um, what, what would be gained by leaving uh, that tradition. Um, <clears throat> early on in the book, uh, Saraja had offered a, an explanation of, of uh, the ways in which um, beauty seems to be in tension with truth and goodness, and uh, perhaps that might uh, remove it from that, uh, that category. But um, uh, uh, many uh, objections to those arguments occurred to me, which I won't elaborate here, um, uh, but, it, but it seems to me that there must be more to it. Now, why is that important? Um, uh, it seems to me that there's, there's a great deal at stake in the question of whether beauty is a transcendental property in the sense of being um, a manifestation of, of, uh, of, of being, um, uh, having, a, 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 having its roots in being. Um, uh, it, why is that? Uh, on the one hand, it seems to me that uh, without a sense of the transcendental depths, you might say, of beauty, uh, it would be very difficult to sustain uh, many of the uh, things that, that Sir Roger argues for very, very uh, centrally in his work. An important uh, a sense that, that uh, beauty is a revelation of meaning, uh, sorry, of meaning, that it um, uh, that it uh, that it that it it's it, it's um, a communication. Uh, he speaks in another book of of things, the the soul of things, uh, things having something like a face. That their beauty is somehow a revelation of of a kind of an internal depth. And it seems to me that that um, uh, saying something like that is only possible if one understands beauty as. Um, as a transcendental property, the danger would be to deny that um, one would, uh, I think, eventually fall back into beauty as principally a, a subjective experience. And, and in the end, um, if beauty is a transcendental property, we can think of uh, God's beauty as a, a communication of his reality. So the, the beauty of the world would be a communication of God's reality. If we deny um, the transcendental status of beauty, it seems to me that it becomes very difficult in the end to make a, uh, an ultimate distinction between um, religion, religious practices that evoke a sort of sense of the sacred, and really good art, which does the same thing. Um, uh, uh, and it seems to me that that's, um, if, 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 if we have difficulty distinguishing between those, um, uh, that raises a question about our understanding of beauty. So those are my two questions about fantasy and about transcendental character of uh, beauty. Uh, thank you for your attention.
So this is just what we want, the accumulation of thoughts and questions, and I, I assume that that is happening in all of your minds as well. But what we'll do is we'll finish our presentations, and then we'll, we'll go back to the questions, and I've noted your very good questions, David. So finally, we will hear from, from Dr. John Crosby, who, as I mentioned before, is a student, was a student of Dietrich von Hildebrand uh, in the uh, 1960s and to the end of von Hildebrand's life in 1977. Uh, Dr. Crosby was also a kind of student of, of John Paul II through his participation at the John Paul II Institute in Rome in the early days before the Holy Father's health um, became an obstacle to his time with people. So there was a great deal of learning that happened there. The whole encounter with Christian personalism was deepened there. And finally, uh, among many publications, uh, the, the thing to note here is that Dr. Crosby is uh, the, one of the primary translators of the Hildebrand aesthetics that will be forthcoming. So let me welcome uh, Dr. Crosby to the podium. With all the talk about Dr. Crosby, it may not uh, be evident to you that I'm the father of uh, John Henry. Uh, many, many thanks to Roger Scruton for not only his lecture today, but for his lifetime of defense of beauty against its many detractors. Now, my task uh, is, I'm a senior fellow in the Hildebrand Project, is to build some bridges between uh, Roger Scruton's work in aesthetics and that of Dietrich von Hildebrand. And I lay out or propose these bridges, uh, eager to hear whether uh, Roger Scruton recognizes these as indeed important points of contact between himself and von Hildebrand. Now in his aesthetics, von Hildebrand has a great deal to say about the way in which beauty nourishes the human spirit. He's always insisting, and it seems to me this is exactly in the vein of Roger Scruton, always existing that the aesthetic experience is not simply a matter of being entertained, this experience goes much deeper and touches the sources of our real flourishing and our real happiness. He argues that the experience of beauty is not a luxury, but a necessity. And it follows that a life deprived of beauty is an impoverished life. This means that a world full of ugliness a world in which beauty is often replaced by kitsch is a world which oppresses and demeans and deforms the human spirit. Now, this leads me to the Hildebrandian contribution I would like to make to the discussion with Roger Scruton. I want to identify certain deprivations of the human spirit discussed by von Hildebrand and explain why von Hildebrand sees beauty as the antidote to these deprivations. In this way, he helps us understand, and understand quite concretely, how it is that we are made for 
beauty and can't survive spiritually in a world that lacks it. So there are three deprivations, three antidotes coming from beauty. Here's the first. In his aesthetics, von Hildebrand speaks about the prosaic, by which he means not just the everyday, like washing your hands, driving to work, but rather a certain aesthetic disvalue. He says, and I quote, the quality of the prosaic emerges most clearly in certain human beings. The bureaucrat is specifically prosaic. The prosaic is the mechanization of the spirit, a mere soulless adhering to the shell of something. The Philistine is even more prosaic than the bureaucrat. This person thinks that things are real only in the sense of an austere usefulness. He regards everything else as a romantic trifle, an illusion, a waste of time. Such persons emanate a prosaic, oppressive, dull atmosphere. End of that quote. In the next sentence, von Hildebrand brings home to us academics the concept of the prosaic. He says, the prosaic exists analogously in the world of the university. There is a specifically professorial dullness, a distressing pedantry, which constitutes a specific antithesis to true personal culture. End of that quote. So if you don't get the idea of the prosaic at first, you'll surely get it now when it's presented in its professorial form. <laughs> now, Van Hildebrand wants to say that the prosaic constitutes a specific antithesis to beauty. The dullness of the prosaic is antithetical to the radiance of beauty. The prose of the prosaic is antithetical to the song of beauty. Von Hildebrand says that all beauty sings. There's perhaps no better way to characterize prosaic people than to say that they don't sing. They are devoid of the spirit of song. Now, what I most of all want to point out is that the prosaic type is an impoverished human being. And that by contrast, the type who sings in the presence of beauty has a full, abundant humanity. The professorial dullness and the distressing pedantry of certain intellectuals gives evidence of a withered existence as persons, whereas those who are deeply affected by beauty sing and give evidence of an awakened existence as persons. It follows that if a person wants to recover from his or her prosaic dullness, that person has to stop thinking of beauty as a romantic trifle and to start taking it seriously, letting its spirit of song affect him deeply. Beauty is then one main antidote to that flattening out of a person that von Hildebrand deplores in the bureaucrat and in other prosaic types. There's a second personal deformation. Uh, 
for which von Hildebrand sees beauty as the antidote. In his aesthetics, he writes extensively about what he calls the mediocrity of certain persons. By mediocre, he does not mean average, undistinguished, getting a grade of C. He rather has in mind a certain personal disvalue, a disvalue that forms a specific antithesis to beauty. He sees it embodied in the Philistine and the bourgeois. It's akin to the prosaic, but not exactly the same. Here is how he characterizes the mediocrity that concerns him in aesthetics. And I quote, the Philistine hates everything that is unconditional. He never wants to leave his warm nest or lose the solid ground under his feet. In keeping with this basic attitude, he regards all that is unconditional and heroic, all glowing enthusiasm and the total gift of oneself as exaggerated. He does not wish to utter a Promethean protest against the world of values and ultimately against God, or to commit himself genuinely to them. He is not driven hither and thither by evil passions. He wants to remain on the golden middle ground in every sphere of life. He never wants to relinquish possession of himself to anything. He does not want to be swept off his feet by great passions or to be touched in the innermost depths by lofty goods which are greater than himself. And of that quote, von Hildebrand proceeds to identify the opposite of this Philistine mediocrity. He speaks of a certain freedom of spirit, of a breadth of mind and heart, um, a capacity for that elevated existence that Plato called divine madness. But what most concerns us here is the antithesis between mediocrity and beauty. Again and again in his aesthetic writings, von Hildebrand quotes the significant saying of Ernst Delot, a French writer of the early 20th century, that, quote, there is nothing the mediocre person hates as much as beauty. End of that quote. What is meant is that beauty, when it seizes us, draws us into a kind of divine madness, and this disrupts that security and control in which the mediocre person wants to ensconce himself. The mediocre person does not want to be beside himself, does not want to live ecstatically outside of himself, and so resents the call of beauty and sees it as something excessive and overwrought. Now, the point at which I'm driving is this, a mediocre person, as characterized by von Hildebrand, is a person with a greatly diminished humanity. And a person fascinated by beauty is a fully alive person. Beauty has the power to dislodge us from that small frame of reference in which we feel safe and to elicit from us the exuberance of a more abundant life. And if you wonder what I mean by exuberance, just recall the spirit of song uh, that von Hildebrand sees in hearing in beauty. So, <clears throat> beauty is the antidote to the prosaic deformation of a person, and also the antidote to a mediocre def deformation 
of a person and of the many other such deformations surveyed by Van Hildebrand, I pick out one more. That's my third and last. He discusses the disorder that a person obsessed with productivity suffers. There are people, plenty of them at the university, myself on many days included, who are consumed with their many projects, eaten up by them. They never come to rest, but are always driven to complete a project, to start another one. They feel that their existence is justified only if they are getting results and becoming ever more productive. Such people run the risk of turning themselves into instruments for production, and in this way, depersonalizing themselves. Now, how does beauty, according to Van Hildebrand, heal persons who have lost themselves in their projects? In this way, beauty demands to be received, so he argues, in a contemplative attitude. The beautiful thing is lifted out of all pragmatic use and admired for its own sake. Sir Roger spoke of that in talking about the intrinsic value of beauty. The beautiful thing can show itself as beautiful only after you have silenced all your projects, all your use of instrumental reason, only after you have learned to dwell contemplatively with the beautiful thing. In this aesthetic contemplation, you come to yourself uh, as person. You're no longer just one who exists for the sake of getting results, but somehow for your own sake. Von Hildebrand writes in his aesthetics, the specifically contemplative element in the frui, frui is the opposite of uti, meaning to use, frui meaning to take delight in. The specifically contemplative element in the frui of genuine beauty in nature and art has an eminent significance for the entire personality. Few things depersonalize a human being as much as the complete absorption in practical tasks. It is only when contemplation and contemplative acts receive their due in our lives that we can truly be persons. It is only then that we come to our true self. End of that quote. And I conclude laying this all in front of Sir Roger, uh, eager for his reaction. Uh, uh, I, I think there's a fundamental kinship with von Hildebrand, but I'll let him determine that. Uh, and I conclude like this, that the loss of beauty in the contemporary world is not just a cultural loss, but an individual existential loss. It cripples persons. And beauty, for its part, is not just a cultural good, but an individual existential good. It has the power to regenerate persons. Well, I had originally thought that we would go to questions from the audience, but I think that our panelists have put some very important reflections on the table. So, Sir Roger, perhaps we could first hear from you, and then we will, if all of this resolves nicely, <laughs> then we'll go to questions. We, I promise you we will go to questions from you as well. 
So would you like to, you can just do, we can, we'll, we'll do yeah. this next part from our seats. Okay. Um, well, David Schindler uh, uh, made, raised two points. First, really asking me to elaborate a bit on the distinction between fantasy and imagination. Uh, and secondly, um, declaring that for him at least beauty is a transcendental, like truth, goodness and being, and that if we don't admit it to be so, uh, a, a crucial aspect of beauty, namely that it's a way of rooting ourselves in being, is lost to us, something like that, yeah. Um, I, I would say about fantasy and imagination, this is a distinction which has been made in different ways down the centuries. Uh, and um, it was made by, uh, first in, a, in an articulate way by, by Coleridge, the poet um, who may be known to everybody as the poet of the ancient the rhyme of the ancient mariner uh, and Christabel and so on, who distinguished fancy from imagination. Um, and he uh, said things which I, I, I wanted to reshape. For, for the use of modern people. Uh, and fantasy for me it is, involves the creation or reception of fantasy objects whose appeal consists in the fact that they are indistinguishable from reality or at least give you an alternative reality and as a result awaken real feelings and give them, uh, if you like, an, an artificial uh, satisfaction. Whereas imagination involves the, uh, the uh, invocation of an entire world, a world which is other than this one, which you know to be other than this one, which you're not tempted to empty, enter because you know you can't. And therefore you can exercise your emotions freely in that world as we do in the theatre or in reading a novel or an epic poem. Uh, and as a result, imagination leads to the education of the emotions, whereas fantasy, uh, precisely because it's sort of ends, it aims at a kind of substitute reality, it bleeds into the actual world uh, and traps us there. The obvious example is pornography, of course, as compared with genuine erotic art, such as the, um, uh, the Venuses of, of Titian. And, and uh, you know, it, the pornography, as, is, as people um, now know it, uh, uh, is something which intrudes into their world, arouses all kinds of substitute emo emotions and feelings which nevertheless demand satisfaction. And as you know, and you made this point, it becomes addictive. Uh, and addiction is, uh, as you again rightly said, is a way of taking you out of this world, taking you away from it. Whereas in, you never get addicted to imaginative things. Each, an, an imagined world requires an effort on your part to enter it and to understand it and to see what it would be, for you, uh, how it could translate into real experiences of your own. You learn from imagination and you become enslaved to, uh, to fantasy. 
And once you, if thinking about these things is very difficult, I know, um, but uh, uh, there are people, I'm sure, in this audience who've had to think about them in the course of therapeutic activities and so on, and to recognize that, that for instance, sexual fantasy uh, is a door into, uh, into a nightmare world, whereas the, the erotic art of Titian or Shakespeare uh, or Keats is a door into something beautiful where you can roam freely without being tempted. So that, I think, is a very important distinction. Um, uh, the reason why I think beauty is not a transcendental has something to do with the fact that I don't uh, believe that there are transcendentals. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but it is also that uh, I have such a, a vivid con uh, experience of ugliness. Uh, uh, you know, the, the ugly things that surround us and intrude on our lives, for me, they're really real. In other words, the absence of beauty uh, uh, can exist with something which nevertheless is replete with being. You know, and it oughtn't to, if beauty was a transcendental, it ought to belong to everything, even to those, uh, um, those uh, uh, horrible uh, blocks that dominate the center of Detroit, for instance. You know, um, if beauty is a transcendental, then Detroit is saved. Um, <laughs> but it clearly isn't. Uh, so, uh, 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 but I agree with Dr. Crosby, with John Crosby, about that, um, that there is a much in common between, between Hildebrandt's um, sense of, of what's at stake in the pursuit of beauty with what I said, as you rightly said, uh, uh, you know, the, the sense of beauty as, uh, as the thing that heals these, um, these uh, diseases of the soul. Uh, is really important for me. And the diseases you mentioned, you know, uh, the prosaic, the prosaicization of the world, um, and the, the kind of bureaucratic depersonalization, etc., ins the instrumentality, instrumentalization of things, these are all things which I think we're all aware of, quite difficult to say exactly what they are, and Hildebrandt deserves some credit for having tried to say what what they are. Um, many poets have also uh, endorsed th this message, uh, and um, yeah, I, I would uh, say that this doesn't really differ from things that I, I would say in, a, in, a, in another tone of voice. Uh, uh, the, the great problem, I think, for everybody is one that was pointed out by Kant, uh, namely that while we all love beauty and want it, we are not all uh, artistically inclined, uh, he himself being one of them. You know, uh, uh, there are unmusical people in this room for whom music doesn't mean anything. Uh, yet for a musical person, uh, mu music contains the secret of life. It's the thing that will, that will give us that, that sense of wholeness that we're all looking for. But how can, but we, if we tie beauty to too closely to artistic activity, we, as it were, um, remove it from, from humanity as a whole. We make it into, a, into an elite possession. Uh, and, and it shouldn't be that, if it is going to be the, the real healing force. But it's one reason for thinking that perhaps beauty, uh, well, art rather, it, it has to give way to religion in the end if we're looking for, if we're looking for something that will heal everyone. So that, anyway, that's my thought.
you like to pursue a little bit the? No, I think we can. We can open. Okay, we can yeah. do that. Thank you. Uh, so, Roger and uh, the panel, I have a question about the intersection of a number of uh, concepts. Um, the first is with regard to um, Christian personalism as it relates to socialism, capitalism. What are your thoughts on how it is that we can, uh, on the one hand, encourage in, uh, individualism and the experience of beauty and at the same time go down the path as you were descri describing Sir Roger uh, consumerism at the same time we have our current Pope who seems to be if not indifferent uh, not fully supportive of capitalism in the way that um, uh, our previous uh, uh, two popes were so be curious to hear your thoughts about the intersection of those mm. concepts. Thank you. Well, the, the, this is a, a more political question, obviously. Uh, the, let's go back to, to what I think personalism is. Uh, um, I'm not speaking as a Catholic. Um, I'm an Anglican, uh, um, which is uh, a nondescript kind of thing to be. Um, uh, but I do believe that the concept of the human person is fundamental to understanding not just what we are as individuals but our relations to others. Uh, we see other people as persons, that means recognizing that they are free and accountable just as we are. Uh, and, um, and there's a, some people don't Live, try and live through their lives not recognizing the freedom of others, seeing others simply as instruments uh, to be used. Uh, and um, that is one of the great sins, that is the, be the beginning of evil, when you, when you instrumentalize even the human being. Uh, and um, it's what we lived through in the 20th century, uh, and we haven't finished living through it as well. Uh, but it's also the case that, that um, there are things which are not human beings, which are persons. Uh, for instance, governments, nations. You, know, you, you here are quite lucky in America that you have a government which is a kind of corporate person. That's to say, it takes responsibility of what it does, it acts freely, it can be accused of its faults and held to account for them. Uh, and that's and the same is true of corporate persons, you know, businesses and so on. And when people complain about capitalism, that it depersonalizes everything, they have a point, but they tend to forget this other thing, the way in which it also personalizes everything by making uh, our corporate activities into things for which we are accountable. Uh, there is no solution, no political solution, in my, to my mind, to the problems that we have all been talking, three, three, have been talking about, you know, the uglification of the world. You're not going to get a political solution to that. You can get a cultural solution, perhaps, when everybody grows up to knowing what is at stake. But um, wh whether, whether socialism or capitalism is more compatible with the personalist vision is not something which is very easy to determine. All I know, however, is that personalism became a real force in Central Europe. 
when it was first growing in, in the philosophy of Shaler uh, and Hildebrandt and Wojtyla and so on, he became a real force as a center of opposition to totalitarianism, uh, Nazism on the one hand and, and communism on the other, and it is a seriously anti-socialist position, but not necessarily a pro-capitalist one. Thank you so much. I teach at a high school down in Lynchburg, Virginia. It's a real pleasure to be here, sir. I had a question for Sir Roger Scruton. Um, I teach literature to 10th graders, and I teach them Homer and Dante, among other things. Um, I try to convince them that there is a difference between good books and bad books. Mm. And one of, the, one of the ways I did that is I said, Dante is better than USA Today. We can all agree on this. But I got myself in trouble when I'd said that we can make the judgments in other areas as well. Mm. I told them that Bach was better than Lady Gaga, mm. objectively so. Um, I got in trouble there where all of my students seemed to be already indoctrinated in this idea that to make judgments concerning beauty is a sign that one is a bigot. And I even had meetings with parents afterwards that were a lot of people very mm. upset about this. Yeah. Uh, how could I best go about persuading my audience that this is so? It's a very interesting question. Uh, and um, I think one has to start very tentatively when it comes to this music thing. Um, uh, uh, trying to get your students to judge between uh, different works of different pop songs. You know, uh, tr get them to see that in uh, Poker Face, Lady Gaga is singing on one note only, and they will recognize, whoa, isn't something missing here? That thing called melody, you know? <laughs> uh, and, um, and then compare it with, say, Elvis's Heartbreak Hotel, where you've got a melody. And it will give them the sense, yes, there is a difference between these two things. And there might be a reason for pre pre preferring one to the other. And gradually work up to the point where they can accept judgment, at least about the world in which they are. Uh, and point out to them the connection between rep repetitiveness and addiction. Uh, you know, that, that you're, you're becoming enslaved to this music because it's simply giving you those three wretched chords over this four in a four, four in a bar, you know, uh, and, um, and so that you can't emancipate yourself from that rhythm. And here is something, you know, try uh, Spiral Architects, is a metal group which has pieces with 25 and a half beats in a bar or something like that, you know, this is at least is different. You're not gonna get addicted to this. In fact, you want to turn it off, don't you? You know. Um, and I think if you do that enough, uh, um, young people do recognize that judgment is actually part of what's already going on in them. It's just that they're killing it uh, by, by becoming addicted to certain easygoing ways of listening. It won't get them to Bach yeah, yeah, uh, just like that. Because to get to Bach, you've got to go through that territory which really frightens them, which is silence. Uh, you know, that means turning that thing off for, for 12 hours and then listening. Thank you very much, Sir Roger. 
Um, so you spoke about um, beauty and the beautiful as uh, that which pleases and sort of draws us forth, draws us into community, and the ugly as repellent and what displeases. Um, but then you also spoke about the ugl uglification of, of modern life, uh, which suggests that there are a lot of people who are choosing the ugly, either choosing to uh, mm. construct it or choosing to uh, pursue it or choosing to be attracted to it. Um, and so I'm wondering how you account for that. Um, is there some compelling power in the ugly? Or, it, or what is it that makes a person choose the ugly when beauty is on offer? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, Transcendentality. Uh, well, um, the fact, of course, the, the need for beauty is rooted in the human soul. And that is un that's in undeniably true. But um, there are shortcuts, you know, that people take. Uh, and David already mentioned this in the, by referring to the addiction that comes through fantasy. Uh, those shortcuts gratify without satisfying. You know, uh, they're the things which produce the instant pleasure. You press the button, but then uh, the pleasure's gone. So you have to press the button again. You press it again and again until finally you're enslaved. But, uh, and the condition of enslavement is a paradigm uh, ugliness. That's how human beings make themselves ugly. So it, it was, as, as it were, uh, ugliness arises in that way by an invisible hand from the intentions of uh, of ordinary people to gratify thing, themselves immediately. And I think that's the general, you know, uh, beauty, beauty requires a, a long-term view, and that the long-term view is, is painful to acquire. Uh, okay. Is it on? Yes. Um, thanks to all three of the panelists for your talks. Really appreciate it. Um, I just wanted to pick on some, up on something right at the end. Um, so, Roger Scruton, you said that, you know, not everyone has, I'm going to stand up, um, not everyone has sort of an artistic soul or ac access mm. to the artistic. We can't all appreciate mm. music or even make it, right? Um, but if, if beauty it really is so important to human being, then it seems to me that there has to be some way that it's not just we're spectators to it, or only the few can create, and then everyone mm -hmm. else has to be spectator. And I was wondering, and this is partially based on the fact that you brought up John Paul II, if we could say, and how we could say, that our work itself has to be beautiful. Um, not just that the, the what we make should be beautiful all the time, I mean, and that would be great, um, but that work itself, like the act of working, should be beautiful, and therefore all of humanity could be brought into sort of this act of making the beautiful, so to speak. Um, and I mean, I would ask all three of you to respond to that. Thank you. Hmm. Well, I'll begin then. Um, yes, I think this is one of the, this is a very important uh, thing that unites Christianity and Islam, the, the view that there is a, a beautification of everyday life, uh, performing what, what you have to do, uh, which might be sweeping a room, you know, or sweeping the street, but 
doing it beautifully, doing it in other words in such a way that you, as to recognize others, and recognize that uh, how it looks to others, want, want to make it look to others as though this was part of their life too. You know, and I think that, um, that, that beautification is a most important part of the human condition. It's what is taught, of course, par paradigmatically by, by Islam. Um, and Christians used to teach this too. I mean, it was the part of the old Puritan message of the settlers of, of Massachusetts, from whom all of you lot are in tremendous rebellion, of course, but um, you know, that, you ought, your, that your daily life is, is, uh, is an offering to God. And it's, it, is, it is so because it is made beautiful by what you do. I think that's a very good suggestion. Um, but r I think there's another thing to be said, though. When ordinary people down the centuries have uh, uh, people uninfluenced by mass communication and all the uh, consumer society and all the things that we know, when they have let themselves uh, um, express themselves in in artistic forms through the ordinary building, for instance, the ordinary building of villages or through folk songs. None of, never do they produce ugliness. The little villages scattered all over Europe are all of them without exception beautiful. Uh, and the folk music of Europe has no ugly examples in it. And when people discovered, started discovering folk music, when the new, the new ways of producing music came in and obliterated the folk music, uh, composers hurried to write down these treasures which were the products of ordinary people, ordinary unassuming people doing what they wanted to do. And I think this is a very important thing that maybe the, the mass of people have lost the ability to make beautiful things, not because they can't, but because this new great uglifying machine uh, that, that was referred to by the gentleman over there, you know, that has mutilated the ears of his students, has come between them uh, and their natural instincts. David, would you like to say something? Just <clears throat> maybe add a, a, a quick note that um, uh, another, I guess, I suppose it's part of the uglification machine is the um, uh, the economic system that 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 uh, drives work typically um, uh, that almost requires a kind of instrumentalizing, which is precisely a kind of uglification, and and uh, there's certainly a connection between that and this. Um, historical uh, drift of the sense of beauty to a, a purely subjective experience becomes uh, increasingly a, pri a matter of of, of, of of a private experience and therefore not a matter of uh, something that belongs in the world. And so we, we, we think of work as something that we do because we have to in order to acquire the means then to enjoy beauty now in the form of entertainment and something that's enjoyed in the home. Um, uh, you know, the response to that would require such a radical rethinking of how society is organized um, so that we don't instrumentalize the things that we make but treat them. Uh, Schiller's got a, a Friedrich Schiller, the, the German philosopher, is one, I think one of the best philosophers of beauty. As a matter of fact, um, uh, speaks of, of giving things dignity. 
when, when you make something, or even uh, clothes that one wears, you, um, you give those, the, the, the things themselves a certain dignity. What does that mean? It means that they're not simply functional, but um, uh, uh, have a certain, uh, you treat them as, 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 in a certain sense, as if they're grant, granting you use. Um, uh, uh, there's obviously metaphor there and analogy, but there's something to that. Um, that I, I think uh, uh, makes a lot of sense in, in terms of work, um, uh, building a chair that has a certain dignity as opposed to simply uh, uh, fulfilling a function or meeting a bottom line or that sort of thing. A few more questions. It's very hard for me to choose from here <laughs> without feeling like I'm being selective. Um, there's an urgent lady over yes, there. Okay, let's, let's, the, the urgent lady over there. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much for your talk, uh, Sir Scruton. I really enjoyed it. Um, my question is about, I've heard the saying that you can't develop a sense of, you know, a sense of beauty, you can't develop your intellect unless all the needs of your body are taken care of and that you can't, um, you need to develop the body first or nurture the body before you can nurture the soul more or less. And so my question was, considering that intellect or beauty and a highly developed sense of beauty is for everyone, how do you give that to people, underserved populations who generally do not have their, their bodily needs taken care of? Right. Um, it's a difficult question, this. Uh, be, Obviously, if you're in a state of physical need, say you're ill, hungry, um, in pain, and so on, uh, it's rather difficult then to turn your attention to the beautiful. The beautiful seems to be uh, seems to belong to the realm of redundancy. You know, when all the jobs are done and we can. Uh, take a leisurely attitude to things, then the, the beauty of the world dawns on us. It's only a saint who can find beauty when, when uh, in, in a state of pain or, or, or uh, sickness or whatever. Interestingly enough though, we have a whole tradition of people who did just that. St. John of the Cross uh, and, and similar uh, uh, meditative poets of the uh, early ages um, w were people who were familiar with starvation uh, and deprivation and sleeplessness and so on uh, and often uh, cultivated it in order to have that vision of beauty which came suddenly in the in the early hours uh, and that's not just a Christian tradition you know Rumi and uh, and uh, Hafiz and the, the, the Persian poets likewise did this. So um, we don't really, there's no clear connection between being sated and being able to enjoy beauty. But for us, for weak people like us in this room, that's the easiest way to go about it. Um, but when it comes to impoverished people in the world today, impoverished communities in Latin America or elsewhere, it should be remembered that, that an impoverished community might still not be living in a state of physical need, of actual hunger or, or, or sickness or pain. Uh, they just don't have the uh, um, access to all the, the pleasures and luxuries and comforts that we have. 
But when we remember that those pleasures and luxuries and comforts have led to the uglification of our world, we are apt to think that maybe they're going to get a better deal when it comes to beauty than we have. And we look at their dancing and their singing, for instance. It's rather, uh, rather more cheerful and, uh, and pure than ours. So that, that's one answer anyway. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Uh, my question is regarding dialectics, and I wonder how you can avoid them. Uh, what I specifically mean is a lot of our learning is learned through what we perceive to be differences, East, West. Yeah. Uh, and if not dialectics, then we also understand things through a hierarchy. Uh, for an example, a car can be more beautiful, but doesn't make it less a car. So you have a hierarchy of goods. Uh, how do we avoid that? And Dr. Schindler, I agree with you. It seems to me that we would have a problem if we don't admit of transcendentals. And would you say that truth is not a transcendental, the good is not a transcendental, or is it just beauty that's not a transcendental? And my last comment about the prosaic person or the mediocre person, what if that person is a contemplative person and is less active on the realm of our perception of that being? Does that person uh, truly uh, someone who is less full? Very efficient question mm. asking here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so we'll. Yeah, there, there, there's a lot of questions there, and it's all, all very interesting. <coughs> uh, <coughs> Obviously, we are questioning beings, and we do uh, automatically contrast the thing that we're interested in with some alternative. And um, wh when you begin to be, be interested in music, for instance, or, or painting, uh, you're never satisfied simply to be exploring the Western tradition or whatever it might be. You're bound to get interested in you know, what did they do elsewhere? What is Indian and Balinese music really like? And so, and it's, that's the way that actually our aesthetic sensibilities expand by, by coming to, to uh, identify in imagination with people to whom we don't spontaneously belong. But we, you know, we come to see that, 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 of course, their world is in its own way as interesting as ours. So I think that this, the dialectical process is very important for expanding your cultural, uh, your cultural expertise or c cultural acquisitions, really. Um, now, the, uh, the other point, I can't remember now. We, you, um, yeah, hierarchies. Yes, <coughs> we do rank things. Um, this was the worry that the gentleman to your left had, you know, how <coughs> we rank things by judging them, what is better than, 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 than other things and so on. Um, it isn't... <coughs> It isn't vital to have a precise hierarchy in your mind of all the things that you like, you know. Um, and often you're content simply to have a, a repertoire that, that you can draw upon, things that are appropriate for this situation or, or that situation, rather than having a hierarchy of values, even though you make judgments uh, of, a, of one kind or another. So I think that's all very... It, I mean, we're now getting into the whole business of what criticism is and um, whether it can be taught or not. People who teach literature and, or, or teach art 
<coughs> or music, confront this question. You know, uh, can you teach these things without also teaching some kind of a critical response to them? If they, someone who says that, you know, that Van Gogh and Thomas Kincaid, they're the same kind of thing, you know. Um, what are you going to say to him? Uh, are you going to give him a, a long discourse on the nature of kitsch and hope that, it will, <laughs> that he'll learn from it? Or do you just show the thing? You know, that's just, this is a big question that all critics have to confront. I think I, that's... Yes. Do you want to me? say something, David, or...? No, no. All right. no. no I, I would, though, um, uh, like if I could return to an earlier question um, and give it a little more attention. <clears throat> I thought it was very probing, the question about the ugly and why the fascination with the ugly when beauty is available. And uh, one can give one answer in terms of a certain cheap, seductive appeal of uh, what's ugly, uh, but perhaps a deeper account of the appeal of the ugly is that it's a way of striking a blow at the beautiful. Mm. So uh, th there is an understandable antagonism to the beautiful with its mystery of transcendence. And uh, one way to strike out against that and live out one's resentment is to, as it were, uh, emphatically produce the ugly and uh, yes. revel in that. You, know, you in your book mention an, uh, uh, an astonishing case of a desecration of a Mozart opera, where yes. in place of the lovers you have prostitutes performing obscene actions on the stage, mm -hmm. where the conductor wanted to desecrate the beautiful mm. piece of work. And so that, I'd like to hear more from you about that motive, where we're yeah. drawn not just to the ugly because we have a weakness for kitsch, but drawn to the ugly as part of a protest against mm. the beautiful. The, the there, there was in, in Japan this beautiful temple at Kyoto, the most beautiful building in all Japan. And um, one day it burnt down, and they, they discovered that it had been burnt down by one of the monks. And he was asked, why did you, why did you do this? He said, because it was so beautiful, it made me feel really inferior. <laughs> um, I couldn't live with it. Uh, and there is, at least that's honest. Uh, and um, <coughs> a much, you're absolutely right, I, uh, th there is a desire to desecrate which is a, as old as mankind. You know, iconoclasm is all about this. The history of the, uh, of the church through the early, the first ten centuries mm -hmm. has involved constant sweeping of the iconoclasm across the continent of Europe. And we in, in England tragically lost 98% of our art in the 17th century when the Puritans just went rampage through the churches mm. smashing things pretending this was idolatry but of course they smashed them because they were uh, in comparison with those things what they were and believed and were doing was so ugly yeah. um, uh, and uh, so we do have a de desire to desecrate and um, uh, we have the desire to desecrate the human form which is what pornography is all about uh, and to desecrate the human being, to reduce him to a state of objecthood. 
And that's what the concentration camps were all about. That's why Europe went through that terrible episode, because pe the people who conducted it were just those sort of people who were made to feel inferior uh, by the perception around them of ideals to which they couldn't match, yeah. to which they couldn't live up, and unfortunately had the power nevertheless to, to bring those things down. So I think we will have to take just one more question, which is There's very, very sad. Urgent lady over there. Urgent lady over there. <laughs> All right, Catherine, can you bring the, can the urgent lady stand? So Catherine can. <laughs> um, so hi, my name is Red. I go here. Thank you for answering all our questions. I just have one more question. Um, but what if, what if the, um, it being ugly becomes mainstream? Mm. And I study fashion marketing, and when you brought up consumerism, I thought that was in really interesting because there's this new wave of loving ugly things. And before, it used to be a protest to beauty. But now I feel like it's lost, it's become superficial, it's mm. lost its um, power. So what happens when ugly is mainstream and everyone loves ugly? And um, does that mean that beauty changes throughout time? <coughs> right. It's a very deep question and, uh, and it is connected with what I was talking about, the uglification of things around us. Uh, the first response is to say, can people really l love things because they're ugly? Aren't they really deceiving themselves into thinking that in some way this uglification is a, is a beautification? Uh, and, um, you know, if you look at the, the truly ugly things that you encounter in modern art museums now, they will always be presented not as uh, as a manifestation of ugliness, but as a challenge to accepted values. You know, uh, they are the uh, uh, expression of this critical spirit, which is, uh, which is raising questions about the complacent bourgeois world in which we live. And, that, uh, and nobody, very few people would say, I do it because it's ugly. Um, and, uh, and if they did, they would accept the, they would have to accept the rebuke. You know, in that case, you know, you shouldn't expect me to admire this. Uh, and, and fashions which involve self-conscious use of ugly details, like mutilation of the body or whatever, uh, those fashions, you know, are what, they are a perversion. I think we should allow ourselves to think that this is a perversion of something natural and it, it will not survive. Or if it did survive, it's because human nature has changed. But uh, uh, you will see, you know, down the centuries, all kinds of difficult cases. The difficult, you know, the the um, the, the Af certain African ways of decorating the face by distorting the mouth with rings or pushing the neck up with with metal rings and so on. Um, we now look on that and think that's that's hideous. But um, Put it in its context and you'll see that actually people didn't do this because they thought it was hideous. This was a way of beautifying. Beautifying by showing the human body as somehow plastic, in, in a way of expressing an idea. So um, just to, to do, there are so few examples of people mutilating themselves in order to make themselves ugly. But that's not a, p a perfect example, uh, answer to your question at all.
Well, I don't know. If, if the answer is in one of your books, then they could find it there. But it might mean that you have another book to write. <laughs> and I think all of you know already that, that uh, Sir Roger has a, a prolific presence online in the form of videos and talks and interviews. And so those of you who don't know that, you can, uh, you can learn more about what was discussed today and so much more. And I also want to, in closing, just say that the Catholic University Bookstore has, I think, particularly in light of this event, a number of Roger's books on questions of beauty and culture and conservatism. So I invite you there. And of course, for the Hildebrand Aesthetics, which will be forthcoming in November, that can be, uh, you, you can become aware of that launch if you're not already on our email list or on our social media by following us there. And that will come very soon. And I want to thank once more Dr. McCarthy of Catholic University's School of Philosophy. Thank you very much for having us here, and we look forward to being back. And we have a reception for you, so we hope that you'll stay. It's over on this um, stage left, and we hope you'll stay. And um, this is also your chance, I suppose, to uh, ask uh, Sir Roger a question. We have to take him away, unfortunately, in the near future. Um, in any case, thank you, Dr. Crosby, Dr. <laughs> Schindler, and Sir Roger. Thank you all for coming.